Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray now, as we come to your word, that you would open our eyes and show us wonderful things, instruct our hearts, plant your word deeply in our souls, that we might see our great need of a Savior and glory in the one who came to do that very thing for us that we could not do for ourselves. Lift up Jesus before us today, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've already said it in my prayers, life is hard. There are no no two ways about it, and although you might think that that is a strange subject for a Palm Sunday, none of us can deny that life is full of disappointments, sadnesses, griefs, losses, hurts, wrongs, and even tragedies. And it isn't to say that we don't have many wonderful things. In fact, we prayed this morning for in thanksgiving for the many good things that God has provided. We know that all good gifts come down from our Heavenly Father to us. And we can be grateful for the many good things that we experience in this life. There are a lot of good things that we get to enjoy. But as real as these good gifts are, so is the reality of suffering in this life. And even as I look around the room this morning, I know pieces of some of your stories. And yet I would be pretty sure that there are pieces of all of your stories that I have no idea about. Maybe few, if any, have any idea about. Things that you carry with you. Things that you have experienced. Hurts that go deep. Tragedies that have shaped who you are and stay with you. And so as we come to this annual marking of Palm Sunday and Easter week that we are now entering into, we need hope. The hope that is found in what Christ has done for us. And so as we look to the cross, that's where we're moving. We're moving toward, toward Friday, not, not to stop there, but to keep going. Easter is what we have our eyes fixed on. But as we move through this week, We know that the cross changes things. We know that it changed things, and we grasp that it has dealt with our sin, but I don't know that we grasp how big of an issue that is. 
not just the issue of our sin being our greatest problem, the problem that we couldn't fix ourselves, couldn't do anything about, but the fact of how sin has affected our lives. Nothing is as it should be. We look at the story of the Garden of Eden and we imagine, but we don't have a clue how it was intended to be. We can only imagine. And yet there is a day coming when everything will be made right. And that longing is in our heart. And so we look through the lens of the cross and the resurrection with a sense of hope. And we need that hope. We're not naive. We know that the cross does not erase our pain. It doesn't undo tragedy in this moment. We still live with it, right? We're still experiencing it. We're looking for that time beyond this life when everything is made right. And so as we approach this week with hope and faith that the cross has defeated sin and death, including the effects of both, the reality is that we know there is a true solution coming. Something that we, again, can't even imagine. If we don't face the harsh realities in this life, we can't appreciate all that the cross has done for us. If we take the approach of pretending things didn't happen, or sticking our head in the sand, or plugging our ears and saying la, 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 or whatever adult version we do of that, because we do do that at times. It's easier to do that at times. But when we do that, we miss what the cross has accomplished for us and the victory that is ours. It is an upside-down, backwards, seemingly contradictory victory. We've talked about this a number of times. It is foolishness to the world, isn't it? It is, it is, it is the power of God to those who are being saved, but to, but to the world it doesn't make sense. And if we're honest... At times, it doesn't make sense to us either. And yet, it is through this coming of Christ as a man, through his death and through his resurrection, that the kingdom of God has been established on earth. And it is in this story of the triumphal entry that we see that reality declared. The son of David, the root of Jesse, the prince of peace, the promised one, has come and has established his kingdom of which there will be no end. And yet we remember that we are in this now and not yet, aren't we? This tension exists where we know that Christ's kingdom has come. We know everything has changed. We know things are not the same. And yet sin is still here. We know that sin has been dealt with, but we're still, we still experience the presence of it. And so there is this tension. We're told to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is is in heaven. And so we recognize that there is still something coming. Because we're praying that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't happen that way yet in the sense of his perfect will for us. So we see in Christ his reign through his church. We see his power and work through the move of the gospel. And we long for the day when he returns and all that has been promised will be fully consummated. And yet there's still the tension. There's still the strain. And I think that where we feel this the most is in the face of tragedy. If God truly loves me, 
Why won't he fix this problem? Why won't he take this pain away? If God is truly good, why did he let this happen? Why did my loved one suffer? If God is all-powerful, why does his church in so many parts of the world still suffer persecution? These are the questions of our heart. They're age-old questions. You've probably struggled with these questions. You've probably been asked these questions by those who are young believers or not believers yet. How do you answer these questions? There are no trite answers. And yet there is an answer. It is in the cross. That which sounds as foolishness to the world, but to us it is the power of God. And as I said before, in our darkest moments, if we're honest, we too struggle at times to feel like it's foolishness. We might not be willing to admit that in church, but aren't there moments where we go, what? What are you doing, Lord? Why did you, you let this happen? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why don't you intervene? How does this make any sense? What does the cross mean for this that I'm facing right now, this tragic moment that I can't explain? Where does the cross fit into this? And yet the cross is the answer. In the cross of Christ, everything that it represents the person and the work of Christ, all that he is and all that he has accomplished on our behalf is repairing and fixing everything. And again, we can't imagine what that looks like. I really appreciate C.S. Lewis's quote when he said, everything sad will become untrue. That may be the best way to capture, at least in my mind, that everything sad will become untrue. And so as we move toward the cross and to the resurrection, it's important that we stop here at the triumphal entry because this is where we see declared both in word and in action the fact that Jesus is king right now and it matters for our lives right now and he is reigning right now in all power even if we can't see it, even if we don't feel it, and even when we question it. It is the clear declaration that the kingdom of God has come. Now, throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, we see that it was his pattern not to make a huge spectacle of himself. Uh, he certainly did. He drew a lot of attention. And there were times when people wanted to increase the attention. And yet we see a number of ways where he pulled away or he went away or he resisted being made much of. And yet in this instance, we don't see that at all. It's, it's a it's a, a breaking of the mold of the pattern that we see in the Gospels. J.C. Ryle writes, Generally speaking, we see Jesus withdrawing himself from public notice, often passing his time in the remote parts of Galilee, not unfrequently abiding in the wilderness, and so fulfilling the prophecy that he should not strive nor cry nor let his voice be heard in the streets. Here and here only our Lord appears to drop his private character and of his own choice to call public attention to himself. He deliberately makes a public entry into Jerusalem. And so this moment is significant, not merely because the crowds respond with the hosannas, but because this was a sovereign demonstration before the people that their king had come. The promised one was here. And in this triumphal announcement and entry into Jerusalem, though, there's also tragedy because they cry out, save us. That's what Hosanna means, save us. They're, they're asking for it. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And yet they were missing what exactly that salvation was. We know they wanted delivery from the Romans. We understand that. Anybody under an oppressive regime would want deliverance. You have to think, they were, they were coming to Jerusalem. The crowds were there to celebrate Passover. That was the event that was coming up. What did Passover commemorate? The deliverance from Egypt, from slavery, from oppression. So this was in their minds. This is what they were looking for. This is what they wanted. They wanted the same kind of deliverance from Rome. And who wouldn't? But the problem is they didn't grasp that wasn't their greatest need. Their greatest problem was their sin. We said it this morning in one of our readings or prayers, empires come and go. There would be others. Christians will be on both sides. People would, would live their lives. They would lose jobs and lose animals and farms and businesses. They would lose loved ones. And ultimately, everyone would lose their own life because death faces us all. And it is in that reality of death that our ultimate problem, our greatest need, comes abruptly before our face. We have a sin issue. How can we, who have sinned, come before a holy God? This is the ultimate problem that Jesus came to rectify, to save his people from their sins. And in doing so, not only conquer the great problem of sin and death, but all that goes with it, the consequences of sin and death, the pain and suffering that we have endured or will endure. You see, the coming of our king and his kingdom is the announcement that, as C.S. Lewis said, everything sad will become untrue. That's what it means for us. Right now, we're in the tension. We feel it. We feel the, the weight of the, the, the presence of sin, the power of sin in this world. And so we trust with hope that he's coming back to finish what he started. And as we look at all the promises of God, including the promise to send a Savior, we see that they have come true in Christ Jesus. And so as we look forward in that hope, it is a sure hope because we have seen he has kept his word. So what he has done, he will continue to do. He will surely do it. He is faithful. And so the story of the triumphal entry points us to this. Now, this is a familiar story. And one of the challenges with familiar stories for pastors is we feel the pressure to get creative. And this will be especially true next year because this is my fourth Easter with you. And so this is the last gospel account. So I either have to go recycle or get creative. I say that jokingly. Um, there is that temptation to get creative. And yet there is no need to get creative with this or the Christmas story or anything because we need to hear it. I mean, if you're anything like me, you come to these stories and, I mean, even in our readings this morning, it's moving to be reminded of what has happened. We get busy. We get uh, desensitized. We get distracted. We forget the significance of what is happening. We're also people who value stories, right? We're connected to stories. We like stories. They, they shape us. They move us. And so we need to hear this story. Now, there's a difference between a fantasy story and a true story. Have you ever watched a movie that you've been really moved by, but you didn't realize it was a true story, and then at the end it comes up on the screen, 
based on true events, and you're like, whoa, you know, it's even more powerful, right? This is a true story. We need to remember that. It's not only a true story, but it's a significant story. And we see this in the fact that all four gospel writers include this episode in their account. We see the triumphal entry in every four, or in all four of the gospels. The journey itself began in the region of Galilee. This is where Jesus had conducted much of his earthly ministry. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll know, well, I don't know exactly what Jesus' motivation was, but if I was in Israel, I'd want to live in Galilee. It's, to me, the nicest area. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's greener, it's cooler, it's lusher. I'm sure he had more holy uh, purposes than that. But that's where he was, and he started journeying south to Jerusalem for what would become Holy Week. He went around the mountainous regions on the east. This was the normal thing to do because it was easier. It was quicker than trying to climb up and down mountains. And so he's coming in from Jericho. We know now from archaeological records that there was a main Roman road. This was a thoroughfare from Jericho to Jerusalem that he would have likely used. And when we see the cities that are mentioned along the way, all of this fits together that this is where he was. He encountered Zacchaeus. We remember that story. More significantly, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was the event singly that drew most of the people out. We're going to see in just a minute there were two crowds. There was the crowd that was with Jesus, and then there was the crowd that came out. And the, the crowd that came out was, was there primarily because they heard the news that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And if you heard something like that, wouldn't you want to go check it out? And so God, in his sovereign timing, arranged all of these things. He set the stage. That as well as it was at the time of, of uh, Passover. And so this would have drawn, people came from all over Israel and really all over the region to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So the crowds were enormous. Uh, they were very, very large. So the stage has been providentially set for this very moment that we see in the triumphal entry. Jesus and his disciples come to Bethany and Bethphage. These are the two towns that are mentioned. We do know where Bethany is. We can you know, still see that. On our maps, that, that location has been retained. Bethphage is not, but most scholars kind of have a consensus of where it is. Uh, it was uh, further up on the Mount of Olives. So they would have, at the end of this road, or really the road continued in Jerusalem, but it was flat up to this point. But you had to go over the Mount of Olives to get into Jerusalem from the east. And so there were these two towns. They weren't cities. They were towns, villages, Bethany and Bethphage. And they were on the opposite sides of the road. So when Jesus says, go into the village in front of you, this is what he has in mind. And he sends the disciples there. They were likely staying at the crowd. Was the, the, Jesus and his disciples, not the larger crowd, was likely staying at Mary and Martha's house where Lazarus had been raised from the dead in Bethany. This is where they lived. This was their hometown, probably a family residence. This is where Jesus would come back to at the end of the story. And in verse 11, we see him return to Bethany. This is probably where he was. Now, the task that Jesus gives the two disciples is what puzzles us because uh, the task is super detailed in what he tells them to do, and it's beyond happenstance that these things could all come together. Jesus says to them in verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, none of the gospel writers tell us how this happened. And what I mean by that is none of, this, none of them tell us how Jesus did this. Did he prearrange this? Uh, he had 
you know, he had his 12 disciples, but then he had a large number of disciples of people all over the country from his ministry. And then he probably had all types of different relationships and and connections with people. So was that what happened here? He just kind of set all this up and it was in place? Or was this a demonstration of his omnipotence, of his omniscience? Did he supernaturally superintend this event? We don't have the answer. The Gospels don't tell us. But what we do know is that it was exactly as he described it. When we read what the disciples encountered, they went and they found the cult and it was tied up. It was a cult on which no one has ever sat or ridden and the people let him take it. That's possibly one of the stranger dynamics because this would have been an animal of value and the people let him take it. So we see it described exactly as Jesus said it would. Now, all of this was done to fulfill a prophecy, a prophecy we read about in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the description there is something, um, uh, it's not just a donkey, it's a colt of a donkey, and that's exactly what Jesus describes here. The plan comes to pass to the minutest detail. Exactly what is described. He comes humbly. And this is not at all what the people expected or frankly wanted. The people wanted deliverance. They didn't want a king on a, on a donkey. They wanted a king on a war horse with a sword. They wanted a king who would take care of business. The business that they thought was their greatest problem. And herein is the tragedy. Because they had not just this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 to, to, to look and see that this is the animal, this is the way he would enter into Jerusalem, but especially prophecies like Isaiah 53, that he would suffer and die for their sins, that he would be pierced for our sins, that he would be bruised for our iniquities. This is what they were missing because they failed to see their greatest need was their sin. And don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? What do we pray most for? A pleasant life? Ease? Comfort? If there was an occupying force in our country, would we not want to be delivered? Would we not be praying to be delivered from it? Or if we feel oppressed, we pray for relief. If we're sick, we pray for healing. If we're wronged, we pray for justice. And these are not bad things that we shouldn't pray for. We should pray for those things. There's nothing wrong with praying for those things. But let's recognize why we face those things. We face those things because they are the result of sin, of living in a fallen world. And so our greatest need is not a relief from our problems, but to be forgiven of our sins. Let me say that again. Our greatest need is not to be relieved from our problems, but to be forgiven for our sins. I don't think we get that. I, I, I know I don't. When, when, I, when I am moved to prayer, it's usually because there's something I want. Lord, deal with this issue. Provide for this thing. Do this, do that. It's not over the brokenness of my sin. It's not over the need for, my, for a Savior. It's because I want. So let's not be hard on these people, even though we recognize it as a tragedy. Let's not not beat them up because they didn't see all of the prophecies and get this. Let's recognize it as a tragedy. I wish they would have. 
But we do the same thing. We all need just what those people needed who shouted Hosanna that day and missed what they were asking to be saved from. We need to be cleansed from our unrighteousness. Now, on that day, Jesus did receive the praise of the people. They threw their cloaks on the back of the colt. They threw their cloaks on the ground uh, for him to walk on. They, they, you think about that. That's significant. Uh, you, know, you, you didn't just do that for anyone. Throw your clothes on the ground for them to walk on with a, a donkey. So this is significant. It's a huge sign of honor. They waved branches. They shouted, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's their version of rolling out the red carpet. Right? We understand uh, what that is. We see that happen with dignitaries and celebrities and people that probably don't deserve it. But anyway, we do that, that, that thing, right? We, we roll out the red carpet. That's what's happening here. It's, 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 a, it's an ancient practice of receiving a, a coming king or a returning king. And I mentioned before that Mark points out in verse 9 that there's two converging crowds, those who went before and those who followed. Those who followed were his disciples and the ones who traveled with him. Those who went before were those who came out from Jerusalem. And this, again, was the ancient pattern of how they received the king. The crowds went out to him and returned with him. They didn't wait for the king to come into the city gates. They went out and they ran back with him. And so here the crowds that have come to Jerusalem for Passover week, they, they go out and they walk with Jesus back as well as those with those who were coming. I remember when we were, when we were little, when we had, uh, especially anybody visit that was significant, but especially grandparents, we had a little bit of a longer driveway. And we, would, and we lived on a dirt road, so it was kind of like an extended long driveway. And uh, when we would, you know, have a time frame, they'd stop at a gas station or something, call, say we're going to be there at, you know, 4 o'clock or whatever. Well, as kids, we didn't wait at the door for them to come. We didn't go down, you know, the driveway. We went down the road, and we stood there, and we waited until we saw their car coming. And then when their car came, we would run beside their car all the way back because we were so excited, and they'd roll the windows down. You know, we laugh and smile at that because you probably experienced something similar to that. It's what we do to show honor. And this is what was happening there for Jesus. The reason I'm making a big deal about this is not only to see the honor of it, but I'm also, you knew this was going to happen. I'm trying to bring revelation back into this. We're coming eventually to where we'll deal with the second coming of Christ. And I want you to remember the triumphal entry on earth. Because it is a model of what the, triumph, the second coming, the triumphal entry, the great triumphal entry, the second coming of Christ will look like when he returns. That those who have already died, like those who were his disciples following with him, will come with him. It says their bodies will be resurrected, but they, they're not laying in their bodies, right? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. They're now those who have died before are with him. And those who are in Christ by faith will be raised up, will be caught up in the air. And we will then return with him to earth. It says to be forever with the Lord. And this is where our hope is found. That whether we die or whether Christ returns, the promise is to be forever with the Lord. At that triumphal entry, the kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we've been praying for all along. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's when it will happen, fully consummated. Sin will be eradicated along with all of its effects. Everything broken will be repaired. Everything sad will become untrue. And every wrong will be made right. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus came not simply to set a moral example to teach us good things. He did those things. Jesus came to lay his life down and die for the salvation of us. Those waving branches that day didn't fully understand not only what he was doing, but how he would do it. The coming kingdom of our father David that they were shouting was not his arriving on a war horse with a sword, but arriving on a donkey that he might die for the sins of many. Paul wrote to Timothy, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why he came, to die to save you and me. So the triumphal entry is both triumphant and tragic in that few, if any, understood what was happening in that moment. Now we get the sense of this anticlimactic ending when we get to verse 11. And we see Jesus come to the temple. He looks around. And he leaves. He goes back to Bethany. Now, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the people who were there with him that day, we would be thinking, wait, we just shouted Hosanna. This is, the, this is the, not the promised one. Aren't you going to do something? Do something. Well, God's timing is not our timing. And he was about to do something. But it was beyond anything that they could comprehend. This was the sovereign plan of God. The triune plan of redemption that was beginning to unfold over the following week. Peter writes, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Peter here is pointing to the earthly things, temporal things. That's what we look for. This is what the people were looking for. Silver, gold, political power, sword, you know, all of the normal things that we think of conquering. It's not what you were bought with, Peter says. He says, no, instead, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He is our only hope in life and in death. And so for you who have yet to believe, this is a call to come and to find rest in Jesus. Not just rest from the weariness of this life, but rest through the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to strive to appease him because you can't. None of us can. None of us can do enough. We can't earn it because what has been broken is irreparable by us. We cannot fix it. It is only in his mercy according to his great love, that we can find redemption by faith in the king who laid down his life as a ransom to pay for what we could not pay. So look to him today in faith and be saved. For you who are believers, today marks a time where we celebrate our humble king who now reigns in glory and works among and through us to establish his kingdom on earth. He reigns not according to earthly power, we got to get this through our thick heads. We continue to act like this is how Jesus is going to work. 
He could. He, he, you know, king's hearts are rivers in, in the palm of his hand, the psalmist tells us. That's not typically how he works. It's not through earthly power. It's not through wealth. It's not through the conquering of political entities. Primarily, he reigns through his church, according to the good work of the gospel, which brings peace. Peace by his word, not by a sword. Do we really get that? I mean, we're, we're more like the people shouting Hosanna because we want God to fix our political problems or our, our, our world problems or our regional problems, whatever it is. Lord, fix the problem. And we fail to see that our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins. He brings peace by his word through the gospel. It is the gospel that we need. And not just at the point of salvation. We need the gospel every day. We need to be reminded of the hope of forgive, our sins being forgiven every day. Because we forget. And we continue to struggle with sin. And we need that to be preached over us every day. Because life is hard. And at times, tragically, tragically uh, disastrous. And yet we have a hope that carries us beyond these things, beyond the here and now. And a hope is not just a far-off hope. We need to be reminded of his presence with us, that he is near. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us in every passing moment. He knows us full well, including all of the harsh realities that we're enduring. And his triumph is our triumph over all of these things. It's a battle for faith. Right now is probably not your battle. Some of you may be struggling to believe. You're hearing me say these words and thinking, it's nonsense. I don't see how this changes my life. But for most of you, right now is the easiest time of your week because you hear it and you, you recognize it and you praise God for it. It's when we leave here and life slaps us in the face that it's really, really hard to keep our eyes fixed on the fact that Christ reigns. He's not going to reign. He reigns now. And this matters over the junk that we experience in this life, the harshness, the tragedy, the loss, the grief. We have a king who came humble, riding on a donkey, to deal with our greatest issue. And he has done so. And so may we be a grateful people, compelled by the love of God, demonstrated in Christ Jesus, looking unto him, that he may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Let's pray. Father, we read those verses in Ephesians and we long to know this deep, deep in our hearts. And yet when we get out of here and life comes back 
And we're reminded of the hurts and the disappointments and even the tragedies that have come or are coming. This is really, really, really hard to hold on to. So we we thank you that you included this prayer in Scripture to help us pray this very thing, that we would know the incredible accomplishment of Christ in his death and resurrection and the incredible riches that are ours in him right now as he reigns gloriously on his throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. Lord, fix this in our hearts that we might see how this matters right here and right now in our lives. And when we can't, and when we struggle, by your spirit, bring our eyes back to Jesus again and again and again. And may we be a people then, Lord, who do this for others, who don't come with a wagging finger saying, shame on you, but who come and point and say, I have a great Savior, a humble king who came riding on a donkey to lay down his life for my greatest need, who now reigns in glory and is with me. May we be a people who point others to the gracious mercy that you have shown us in Christ. May we do this with our words and may we do this with how we live, that you might be glorified and bring many to salvation. We're thankful to you, King Jesus. We look to you who are reigned from above in and through your church. Show your power among us and through us today, we pray in your name.